Good morning, church family. It's great to see all of your smiling faces here today. And to all of our fathers here this morning, I want to wish you all a happy Father's Day. Fathers, it has been my prayer for you this week that you be strong, that you show yourselves as men, and that you keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways, keeping His statutes, keeping His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies. Because if those words were good enough for David to pass on to his son Solomon, then they are certainly a good enough prayer for each one of you. Therefore, to all of our fathers here this morning, happy Father's Day, and continue, fathers, to be steadfast in leading your families in the ways of the Lord. As for our sermon this morning, today, church, we will be finishing up chapter 1 in the book of Habakkuk and looking at verse 1 in chapter 2 which really begins the second round of discourse between the prophet Habakkuk and that of God himself. However, before we get to that second round of discourse, let me briefly recap for you, church, exactly what transpired during the first interchange between Habakkuk and God. So in verses 2 through 4, the prophet Habakkuk, he quite frankly brought a complaint before the Lord. That complaint being that the people of Judah, a.k.a. God's covenantal people, were no longer walking in the ways of God. But instead, they had devoted themselves, verse 3, to iniquity and wrongdoing, to destruction and violence, and to contention and strife. And thus the law in Judah, verse 4, it was being paralyzed, and the justice in Judah, verse 4, it was going forth perverted. Therefore, Habakkuk, in seeing all this wickedness and injustice take place, he goes to God and says to him in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? For Habakkuk wants to know how much longer his good and upright and just God is going to allow this wickedness and injustice to continue to run rampant throughout the nation of Judah before he finally puts an end to it. To which the God of the universe replies to the prophet Habakkuk by saying in verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For in essence, God is saying to the prophet here, Look, Habakkuk, I am already at work among the nations, and what I am doing to bring about judgment and chastisement and discipline to the land of Judah, you wouldn't believe it even if I told you. Because what God was going to do, church, verse 6, was raise up the Chaldeans. Meaning he was going to raise up the big, the bad, the Babylonians to be the rod of judgment against the people of Judah. For God was going to discipline his people, church, with a nation who was dreaded and fearsome, verse 7. With a nation whose horses were swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves, verse 8. With a nation who came for violence, verse 9. With a nation who scoffed at kings and laughed at rulers, verse 10. And with a nation who could sweep by like the wind and go on and whose own might was their God, verse 11. Basically, God was going to raise up some really, really bad dudes in order to bring judgment to the nation of Judah. And thus, with that answer from God now ruminating in the mind of the prophet Habakkuk, 
what we see here in verses 12 through 17 is that of Habakkuk's response to that answer, or Habakkuk's second complaint that he is going to bring before the God of the universe. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, church, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Christian, when you pray, make sure you grasp properly who your God is and be content to wait on him for an answer. Christian, when you pray, make sure you grasp properly who your God is and be content to wait on him for an answer. That's at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to the Old Testament, to the minor prophets, and to the book of Habakkuk. For today, we will be starting in chapter 1, verse 12, and ending in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, if you are visiting with us this morning and do not own a Bible, please know that is okay, for there is a Bible located in the chairs in front of you, which we want you to grab and honestly to keep if you do not own a Bible. However, the only thing we ask if you take one is that you read it, starting today by turning to page 785 and joining us as we hear the Word of God together this morning. So again, we are in Habakkuk chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 12, and we'll be wrapping up in chapter 2, verse 1. For the prophet Habakkuk, he writes, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad." Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, it is eternal. Father, open our eyes to your word this morning. Open our ears to this message. Soften our hearts to be able to receive it. Lord, if there is conviction that needs to take place this morning, let there be conviction. If we need to be comforted, by you, God, our rock, let us be comforted by this text. Father, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are our rock, our fortress, our refuge, our stronghold in our time of need. Thus, let us see this morning, Father, if we are in the midst of affliction, difficulty, sickness, whatever the season of difficulty may be, 
Father, let us find peace in the fact that you are using it. And you will complete a good work in us. For pure gold fears no fire. Thus strengthen our confidence in the work you are doing in each one of us and through the seasons of difficulty that we may face. Let us be comforted by your word this morning. Father, I pray for help. Send your spirit this morning, please. Give me clarity of mind. Help my lips, my lisping, stammering tongue to be glorifying to you this morning. Father, if I look like a fool in the eyes of man, that is okay if you use this word to convict your people and to call people to yourself. Do this work that only you can do, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Christian, when you pray, ground yourself first in the attributes of God. Christian, when you pray, ground yourself first in the attributes of God. Verse 12, Habakkuk writes, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Now again, church, in order to keep proper context in mind, the prophet Habakkuk has just received word from God that God was going to use the fearsome, the dreaded, the vile Babylonians as the tool to bring about judgment against the people of Judah. And thus, in hearing this, Habakkuk, he goes to God and says these initial words recorded here in verse 12, which reads, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, and my Holy One. And what is interesting here, church, is that despite the overall confusion and bewilderment and consternation from the prophet Habakkuk concerning the fact that God, verse 12, has ordained the mighty Babylonians as judgment against the nation of Judah, Habakkuk is still a man informed by his theology. Therefore, initially here, he seems to be grounding himself in what he knows to be true about the nature, the character, and the attributes of God. For Habakkuk here opens verse 12 with a rhetorical question. For he writes, are you God not from everlasting? And make no mistake here, church, Habakkuk, he asked this question not because he doesn't know the answer. Not because he isn't sure about the answer, but instead to make a point. Because Habakkuk knows without a shadow of a doubt the answer to this question. For Habakkuk knows that his God, that Yahweh, that the great I am is everlasting. For he knows, church, that his God is not like the counterfeit gods that are made of silver and gold created by human hands and littered throughout the ancient Near East. For instead, Habakkuk knows that his God had no beginning, has no end, and is eternal. That he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and thus is equally faithful, past, present, and future. For that is what Habakkuk knows to be absolutely true about his God, that he is everlasting. However, not only that, church, but this rhetorical question in which Habakkuk asks, it is addressed to, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. 
and thus as confusing and as perplexing and as confounding as this entire situation was to the prophet Habakkuk. He still also knew that his Lord and his God was sovereign and supreme and omnipotent and almighty, and that his God, verse 12, was holy, as in flawless, moral, just, and righteous, awesome, majestic, perfect, and good, separate, distinct, other, and in a class all to himself. And that right there, church, is the theology of the prophet Habakkuk. For that right there, church, is what Habakkuk knows and believes to be true about the nature of his God. Therefore, is it any wonder, church, why the prophet Habakkuk concludes verse 12 that we, Judah, shall not die? Because although Habakkuk knows Babylon is powerful and dreaded and fearsome and destroys nations as they sweep by like the wind, even more than that, church, Habakkuk knows that his God is everlasting, is all-powerful, is holy, and is absolutely, comprehensively, and perfectly faithful to keep all of his promises. For as the 19th century missionary to China, Hudson Taylor wrote, Our heavenly Father is a very experienced one, for he knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning, and yet he still sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, we do not expect that God will send three million missionaries to China. However, even if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all, since God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. For as the scriptures read, church, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, Deuteronomy 7.9. Therefore, church, although Habakkuk knew that his God was going to chastise and judge and discipline the people of Judah for their sin, even more than that, Habakkuk knew that God would never break any of his promises and allow Judah to be completely wiped off the face of the earth because our God, church, he is a covenant-keeping God who promised his people an offspring who would crush the serpent's head, who promised his people a seed who would bless all the nations, and who promised his people a Messiah who would establish a kingdom that would endure forever and ever. And church, the gates of hell will never, and I mean ever, prevail against the promises of God and the prophet Habakkuk. He knew that. Therefore, despite the judgment and chastisement and discipline that was coming Judah's way, Habakkuk still knew that his God was eternal and sovereign and holy and faithful and thus could conclude without a shadow of a doubt that we, Judah, shall not die for our God is a covenant-keeping God who keeps all of his promises and will preserve a faithful remnant from the line of Judah. And thus, is it any wonder, again, church, why Habakkuk closes verse 12 by referring to God as, O rock? Because to Habakkuk, God is his rock and his fortress, Psalm 71, his rock and his refuge, 2 Samuel 22, his rock and his stronghold, Psalm 18, and the foundation in which he has built his entire life upon. Therefore, church, even in the most difficult 
and baffling and confusing of times, let us, like the prophet Habakkuk, never forget our theology, that there is only one who is everlasting, only one who is sovereign, only one who is holy, and only one who is steadfast and absolutely faithful, and his name is Yahweh, church, for that is the God in whom we pray to. Thus, brother Christian, sister Christian, sure, your problems, they may be big, but your God, he is even bigger. Therefore, no matter what you are dealing with in the here and now, Christian, do not let it rock your theology and do not let it sway who you think your God is. But instead, in the midst of your hardships, whether you are dealing with an elderly parent or an ill child, chest pain or unemployment, loneliness or a cranky boss, remind yourself this morning, Christian. Ground yourself this morning, Christian. Comfort yourself this morning, Christian, with your theology and with who you know your God is. Everlasting, holy, sovereign, covenant-keeping, and good, and thus is your stronghold, Christian, in your day of trouble. Therefore, build your life on that foundation, church, no matter what you are going through, for it is the only foundation that is out there, church, that is as steady as a rock. Brings us to point number two. When things around you don't make sense, Christian, do not reject God, but instead stand firm on his promises. When things around you don't make sense, Christian, do not reject God, but instead stand firm on his promises. Verses 13 through 17. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So Habakkuk in verse 12, church, a man informed by his theology, seemed to ground himself by stating and affirming and declaring that his God is everlasting and sovereign and holy and faithful and is the rock in which he can take refuge in now and forever and ever and ever. Nevertheless, in verses 13 through 17, we see the crux in which Habakkuk is really struggling with. Because in light of his glorious theology, or in light of what he knows and understands and believes to be true about God, Habakkuk writes in verse 13 that you, God, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Meaning, as Ken Fentress describes it, Habakkuk here is struggling to reconcile his theology 
with the initial response that he has received from God. Because how on earth can God appoint Babylon to execute judgment on Judah without first violating his own standard of justice since Babylon is more sinful than Judah? For that is the dilemma that just does not sit right in the mind of the prophet Habakkuk. Because to the prophet Habakkuk, it just doesn't jive with the character, the nature, or the attributes of God. Therefore, Habakkuk's second complaint, or his second accusation, if you will, toward God, goes something like this. That since God is sovereign and all-powerful, and in control of all things, then it seems as though God is, verse 14, making mankind to be like the fish of the sea and like crawling things that have no ruler. To which Babylon then, verse 15, brings them up with a hook and drags them out with his net. Now, it doesn't take a professional fisherman here, church, to figure this metaphor out. For what Habakkuk is saying here is that Babylon are like highly skilled, exceptionally proficient, and wisely trained fishermen who are able to, verse 15, use their hooks and their nets and their drag nets to bring fish out of the water, to drag them into their boats, and to gather them for themselves. However, what Habakkuk has in mind here is not that of fish, church, but instead that of people of mankind, of captives, meaning Babylon with their tools and their power and their know-how are, verse 6, marching throughout the breadth of the earth, taking nations down and bringing up, dragging out, and wickedly gathering captives all to themselves. And church, there is some vivid and quite honestly grotesque imagery here. Because when the Babylonians did indeed conquer a nation and, verse 9, gather captives up like the sand. It was often their practice, as Walter Chentry describes it, to march those prisoners of war off into captivity by stringing them together with literal hooks that were thrusted through the lower lip of each captive. However, church, the disturbing depravity of Babylon, it does not end there. Because after Babylon would capture a nation and rip captives out of their homeland, just as a fisherman would rip a fish out of the sea, Babylon then, verse 16, would make sacrifices to their nets and offering to their dragnets, meaning they were content to praise, to worship, and to rejoice in their own success, in their own counterfeit gods, and in their own tools that would make them rich and not in the sovereign God of the universe. Therefore, the prophet Habakkuk he closes chapter 1 this way. For he writes, is he then Babylon to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? In essence, asking God, how much longer are you going to allow wicked Babylon to take out mankind before you stop them and bring about justice to this wicked nation? Now I can't help but pause here for a second, church and wonder what is the prophet Habakkuk feeling here? Because his theology is telling him one thing, 
And yet what he's seen and observing and witnessing, it just does not seem to jive with his theology. For he is witnessing church Babylon, big, bad, evil Babylon, take over the world, worship their own might, and sacrifice to their own counterfeit gods, all while they, verse 16, live a life of luxury and eat food that is rich. And thus, make no mistake here, church, for this is the type of situation that unfortunately can lead to significant doubt and despair. For it reminds me of John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, where the main character, Christian, he frequently tasted that of doubt and despair. And there was one occasion in particular where he was getting close to the celestial city, a.k.a. to the heavenly Jerusalem, where he got off the narrow path by jumping over a fence in order to travel down a much softer and much easier path. However, as the story goes, that night while he slept, he was captured by a giant whose name was Despair. And he was taken back to the giant's home, a place called Doubting Castle. And while in Doubting Castle, Christian was locked away in a dark and dirty and smelly dungeon. He wasn't given any food from Wednesday to Sunday, and it was the practice of giant despair to beat Christian with a club, thus leaving Christian feeling weak and hungry and moaning in pain. Therefore, after a couple rounds of these beatings throughout the week, Christian then began to begin, begin to believe that dying would be better than living. For that was the goal of the giant named Despair, to live out his name and to try to discourage Christian to the point of losing all hope in his God and to ultimately get him to kill himself. However, as Christian awoke on a Sunday morning after a night of fervent prayer, he said, How foolish have I been, for I just remembered that I have a key in my coat pocket next to my heart, for it is a key called promise, a.k.a. the assurance of eternal life, for I am sure it will unlock any lock here in Doubting Castle. And with that, the bolt gave way and the door flew open, and Christian was able to escape Doubting Castle, flee from the giant despair, and march faithfully onward down the narrow path. Now church, whether you are Habakkuk, whether you are Christian from the Pilgrim's Progress, or whether you are just plain old simple you, when the storms of life come, whether you realize it or not, you have two choices. For you can say that this storm that this sickness, that this injustice just doesn't make sense and thus declare at the top of your lungs that you are done with God. Or you can say that although this storm or sickness or injustice just doesn't make sense to you, that you, God, are still my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. And whether you give or whether you take away, still blessed be the name of the Lord. Because even though everything I see and feel and think doesn't make any sense to me, I still know that it makes sense to you, God, for you are the Alpha, the Beta, the Gamma, the Delta, the Omega, and everything in between, for you are still God, for you are still good, and that no matter what comes my way, I 
I know I can still trust in you forever. Therefore, let me encourage you this morning, church. For when you are trapped in Doubting Castle and giant despair is beating on you and you feel as though darkness is your only friend, do not lose hope. For although the anxieties you feel, the sorrows you face, and the troubles you have been called to endure are real and painful and agonizing and at times make absolutely no sense in the here and now, continue, Christian, to trust in a God who has given you a key called promise, the assurance of eternal life. So yes, brother Christian, yes, sister Christian, the pain, the suffering, the weeping, they may tarry long into the night, but for those with the key called promise, eternal joy, it will come in the morning and it will last forever and ever and ever. Therefore, do not run from your God in times of need, Christian. Do not flee from him. Do not depart from him. Do not retreat from him but instead cling to him and never let go because the tears you may have to sow in the here and now, Christian, they will reap shouts of joy, I promise you, if you remain steadfast, standing on the promises of God. As we close this morning, church, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here first. And non-Christian, in light of everything that I just said, I would be absolutely remiss as a pastor if I didn't share with you right now the promise, hope that we now have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you see, non-Christian, that promised one who was to come and crush the serpent's head, that promised one who was to come and bless the nations, that promised one who was to come and establish a kingdom that would endure forever, non-Christian, he came and his name is Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ, non-Christian, he has already come into the world as truly God and as truly man to take away the sin of the world. Now I assume you might be sitting there wondering this non-Christian. Well, how exactly did he do that? And the answer to that question, non-Christian, is this, that first off, Jesus Christ, he lived a life here on earth that was completely faithful to the law of God, meaning the law that we break over and over and over each and every day, non-Christian, Jesus Christ, he lived a life here on earth that was righteous and holy and just and perfect and free of any sin. And thus Jesus did what no other man has ever done, that being he kept the law of God. And he did it, non-Christian, for the children of God. However, non-Christian, not only did Jesus Christ fulfill the law of God for the children of God, but he also paid the price for their breaking of the law. And thus because the wage of sin is death, or the cost of sin is death, that was the price then that Jesus Christ paid on our behalf. For Jesus Christ, non-Christian, was literally nailed to a cross at Calvary and bore the wrath of a holy God that we deserved for our sins and died in our place as our very substitute. 
however non-Christian, being that Jesus Christ never sinned and was perfect and spotless and righteous, he then was accepted by God as the propitiation for our sins, as the wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins. And thus, three days later, the crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead, displaying to the world that he had defeated sin, crushed death, and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you in his perfect life, in his righteousness, and reconcile you back to God forever. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you place your trust in Jesus Christ, that you repent of your sin and receive the promise of salvation, the gift of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, we will close this morning by considering briefly the first verse in Habakkuk chapter 2, which reads, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now what's taking place here, church, is that Habakkuk seems to realize to some degree that his second complaint or his second accusation, if you will, might have been a bit reckless. Therefore, it almost seems as though Habakkuk here has decided to take a step back, to take a deep breath, and to just be content, verse 1, to take his stand at the watch post, to station himself on the tower, and to look out to see what God will say to him. In essence, Habakkuk is willing to be patient, to remain faithful, and to wait on the Lord for an answer which in all honesty is becoming a foreign concept to our society today. For we are a society, church, that isn't very good at waiting. I mean, we as a society get angry now if our Amazon package doesn't show up in two days, if our DoorDash meal isn't delivered within 30 minutes, or if our friends don't instantly text us right back once we text them for instant feedback, instant gratification, and impatience have become hallmarks of our society, which is not a good thing, church, especially since with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Therefore, brother Christian, sister Christian, in the midst of those hard and exhausting and strenuous seasons of your life, how then are you at waiting on the Lord? For are you patient, Christian, or are you impatient? For are you long-suffering, Christian, or are you defiant? For are you willing to endure, Christian, or are you quick to get frustrated with your God? And the reason I ask, church, is because, as J.C. Ryle wrote, there is nothing which shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. For we forget that every cross is a message from God and intended to do us good in the end. 
Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, and to drive us to our needs. Health is a good thing, but sickness is far better if it leads us to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. For anything, anything is better than living in carelessness and dying in sin. Therefore, brother Christian, sister Christian, let me lovingly encourage you this morning, do not get impatient with God. Do not get frustrated with God. Do not get annoyed with God that he isn't working according to your timeline or according to your plan. But instead, Christian, and please deposit this tidbit into your bank of theology this morning, that no matter what season of life God has called you to walk through, he is faithfully using it, Christian, to drive you to your knees, to wean you from the world, and to grow you in likeness. Therefore, do not grow weary of doing good, Christian, even in the midst of your trials, but instead remain patient, Christian, in the Lord, knowing that his timing is perfect, that his ways are right, and that his intentions are good, and that he is using it, church. Every season of sickness, every time of trial, every period of pain to refine you, to remove your sinful impurities, and to purify you so that you emerge from that season of life, Christian, as purer gold. Therefore, church, let us this morning, now and forevermore, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer, knowing that our God is absolutely faithful to complete the work he started in us, even in the midst of tribulation. Thus, it is my prayer that we as a church body see you, God, as you are, not as some genie in the sky, not as some idol made by hands, not as some fable handed down from generation to generation, but that we see you, God, as everlasting, as sovereign, as holy, as faithful, and as the rock of our salvation. Father, I also pray that in our times of tribulation and turbulence, in our seasons of sadness and strain, that we remain steadfast, trusting you, and that we not be swayed by what we hear, what we see or what we feel, but that we remain committed to believing your infallible, inerrant, sufficient, and perfect word. And finally, Lord, keep us patient. Father, everything in this world is telling us that if we don't get an answer from you instantly, that you are not good. However, we know, Father, that you are good. Therefore, give us the courage, Lord, to wait patiently on your perfect timing, to trust in your perfect ways, and to take joy in the work that you are completing in us. For let us as a church body hold fast to the confession of our hope in Jesus Christ without wavering, since we have a God who now and forevermore is faithful to keep all of his promises for his children, even in the midst of suffering. Let's pray, church. Father, as we open your word, and we view these words through our own sinful flesh, Father, at times they are not easy to hear, but yet you are good, Father, and they are exactly what we do need to hear. Father, it does no good to lie to each other, thinking that it will be all sunshine and roses here on earth. 
We are sojourners passing through this world to get to the celestial city, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Father, let us remain faithful. If times of trouble, heartache, pain, strife, sickness do come our way, help us to know, Father, you are using it for the good of your people. You are using it for, the, or for your glory. You are refining us. You are burning that dross away and making us purer and purer through each trial we come through. Let us consider it all joy, Father, that we are going through, knowing that you only do what is best for your children. If we ask for bread, you will not give us a rock. You are stripping us of every impurity until the day that Christ returns. For what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Thus let us hold fast to those confessions of the faith and be patient on you. For you are God and you are good. Amen.